Every time I hear an ordination charge, I think of Paul's last message to Timothy. Verses 2 through 5 in uh, 2 Timothy 4, he gives nine imperatives or uh, nine commands. Uh, But those are not the most daunting things in the text. It's verse number 1 that always stands out to me. Um, Paul tells Timothy... You know, we know the text where it preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober minded, enduring suffering, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. Now that's daunting. That is a huge, huge undertaking. But it's verse number one that has always stood out to me. And when I hear a charge, I think of it. Verse number one says, Paul tells Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. If you'll notice here, Paul didn't charge Timothy on the basis of his personal relationship with Timothy. He could have said something like, I, Paul, your father in the faith, charge you. But he didn't do that. Paul also didn't charge Timothy based on his apostolic ministry alone. He could have said, I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, charge you. But he didn't do that. He calls into account some incredible transcendent realities as the basis of his charge to Timothy. He said in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, that he says that the Godhead is watching. That that is, that that is an incredible basis for ministerial accountability. That God is watching. And then he calls, he reminds Timothy of the second coming of Christ, that he's coming in judgment and that he will consummate his kingdom. That that is the basis of his charge to Timothy. But... There is a specific context. If you'll notice, the last thing he says is fulfill your ministry. That I want you to finish your ministry. Finish well. This ministry takes place in a specific context. A shepherd does not shepherd in a void or in a vacuum. A shepherd shepherds among people. If you'll even notice in the text, preach the word. You are preaching the word to people. To be ready in season, out of season, to reprove, you are doing that among people, with people. To rebuke, exhort with complete patience. You're being patient and doing all of these things with people. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching and they'll accumulate for themselves. The context that the ministry takes place is among the people of God. So my task today is to charge us here at Mainerville Fellowship. The leadership has responsibilities to the church, but the church also has corresponding responsibilities toward leadership as well. And I want to talk about those just for a brief moment. If you'll take your Bible and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter number 5, I want to read two verses. And I'll have four points as well. We did not plan that. The leaders and the congregation are not just to coexist. 
but to cooperate and a partnership. I didn't know which way Matt was going. The elders, the elders are to partner and to cooperate, but also the leadership and the church, the congregation, are to work together and to cooperate. We are not to coexist, but to cooperate together on the mission of God for the glory of God. Not just to tolerate one another, not that you tolerate leadership and the leadership tolerates the body, but that we work together in love, that we cooperate together. So 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13 says this. Paul says this to the church in Thessalonica. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. I want to give you four thoughts that will, or four, uh, four points that will guide our thoughts through this charge. I want you to see the church's recognition of its leaders. Number two, the church's respect that it should have for its leaders. And then the role of its leaders because understanding the role of the leaders is where the respect and the recognition comes from. And then fourthly, the result of following a request that Paul makes in this passage. In 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 6, we find out that Timothy had returned to Paul from Thessalonica and he gave a report. The Thessalonian church was primarily a healthy church. But they were a young church. They were around a year old, maybe even younger than a year old. Because the church was in its infancy, its leaders were not very seasoned as well. The most mature men among them were selected to be leaders. And the, and, but the, we find out in the text of the book that there were issues there. They were a healthy church, but there were some issues. So what do you think would happen? What could happen if you have a young church that has issues and they also have young leaders? That's what's going on in this book. So Paul asked them to do something. Paul asked the church, number one, to, uh, to recognize its leaders. The word used here for recognize, he uses respect. The word means to recognize or to know, to have a knowledge of, or to pay attention to. Paul repeats this same exhortation in 1 Corinthians 16, 15, where he calls the church to recognize the leadership of those in the house of Stephanus. It carries the idea to recognize, to know, or to appreciate because of the knowledge of. John MacArthur says this, And the first responsibility that we have to the shepherds is to appreciate them because we've gotten to know them. Don't let your knowledge of them be superficial. This is calling for a deep knowledge that leads to understanding of what they go through and what they do. What Paul is asking is that there would be a recognition of who they are and what they go through and what they do. That you as a church body should know your elders. That you should know who they are. That you should recognize them, know what they're doing and what they go through. Would that change how we relate to one another? Would that change how we work together? Absolutely it would. 
So they asked for a recognition, recognize they were a young church with young leaders, but he said recognize, get to know, and know what they go through. Number two, he says for them to respect its leaders. Verse number 13, he says, we'll read 12 and 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them. The word translated here to esteem means to refer. It refers to a belief or opinion that rests on a deliberate and careful judgment that weighs facts. This is not how you feel about someone. This is not how you, how you uh, just look at someone and you think about them. This is how you feel about after examining. It's to hold an opinion with regard to something. It's an examination that is based on something. So he's saying, I want you to esteem them, not just to have this, this conception about them, but to, once you get to know them, you recognize them. Then he said, you esteem them, and there's a basis for the estimation. To esteem them very highly. The word there means beyond all measure. To go very, very far in your estimation. If you, it reminds me of 1 Timothy 5.17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Notice what he says. Esteem them very highly. And how do you do that? In love. But what is the basis? This word itself means that you're, you're looking at, you're carefully judging based off certain facts. That's what the word means. But what facts are you looking at? You're, it's not how you feel about the individual, what, what you think about their personality, what you think about how they look or how they come across. You're looking at certain facts. What are those facts? You esteem them very highly in love because of their work. It's the work that they're doing is why you esteem them very highly. Notice this. This is... To esteem them, this is Albert Barnes, to esteem them very highly in love, to cherish for them an affectionate regard. The office of a minister of religion demands respect. They who are faithful in that office have a claim on the kind regards of their fellow men. The very nature of the office requires them to do good to others. And there is no benefactor who should be treated with more affectionate regard than he who endeavors to save us from ruin. The work that the minister is engaged in should cause you to esteem him so high in love because of the work. He goes on to say, to impart to us the consolations of the gospel in affliction and to bring us and our families to heaven. Why in the world would we not esteem? That's what Paul's saying. Esteem, you, there was this going on in the church there in Thessalonica that they were, they were warring against each other. Instead of esteeming them highly, they were trying to help them. He also says, for their work's sake, not primarily a personal matter or on their own account, but on account of the work in which they're engaged. It is a work whose only tendency when rightly performed is to do good. It injures no man. 
but contributes to the happiness of all. It promotes intelligence, industry, order, neatness, economy, temperance, chastity, charity, and kindness in this world and leads to eternal blessedness in the world to come. A man who sincerely devotes himself to such a work has a claim on the kind regards of his fellow man. That's Albert Barnes. So we see Paul asked them to have a recognition of the elders, to know them, to not only know who they are, but to know what they're engaged in. And then because of that, they will esteem them highly because of the work. And then we see here the role of the leaders. And it's through the recognition of the roles is where the esteem flows out of, the understanding of who they are and what they do. In verse number 12, he says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you, who are over you, and who admonish you. Those are the three things that he says they do. First, labor among you. This speaks to the difficulty of the task. It, it speaks of how hard it is. It is to engage in hard work, toil, labor with wearisome effort. The word is most tense and strenuous in effort and exertion. It's a description of the diligence of these men in carrying out their ministries and not a description of the particular ministry itself. How they're working at. So they're toiling, they're laboring. And then he goes on to say how they're laboring, they're laboring over you. This word means to, to be over, to have charge over, to lead, to manage, to rule over, to be at the head of. So to labor in this, to be in charge of, to be over is not an easy thing. Hebrews 13, 17 says this, obey your leaders and submit to them. Matt read this. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Those are two commands, separate commands, obey and submit. To be in charge of, to be over, that is not an easy task. It's the Holy Spirit that has raised the elders up. And to, to, if the Holy Spirit is the one that raised him up, to go against that is to be against the Holy Spirit. The third one is to admonish. The word used here is a compound word. It's a word for the mind. And it's also, uh, it, it's, it's a word for the mind with a verb that means to, to place or to set. It has the meaning of uh, to place in mind. It's, it's a, the idea of warning someone about disastrous consequences to come. He's saying this is not easy. The job that he has to do, he is laboring in. He is, he is over and he will admonish, he will warn, he will do those things. And because of that, it ought to turn your heart toward him, not away from him. Because he's doing this, you ought to esteem him and love very highly for that work's sake. Because he's endeavoring to do that. Then fourthly we see... What's the result of following this request? Let's read 12 and 13 again. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish 
that admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And this last phrase, be at peace among yourselves. When we do these things, what, what will it bring? When we work together, when we cooperate, when, when the church and the leadership is working together, it will bring peace. The term here means to cultivate or to make peace. That it takes effort to do that. That you must be engaged in that to be at peace among yourselves. I want you to notice that not only here but in the Hebrews 13 text it has a similar ending. That obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. So that at the end of this text, here in Thessalonians, there's peace. There, there, and then here at the end of the Hebrews text, when uh, we do what we're supposed to do, when we're lined up under the leadership the way that it's supposed to be, that it's to our advantage. There's a cause and effect to going against what God has prescribed. John MacArthur says this, on appreciating your leadership. I didn't even know Matt was going to read this this morning or talk about this this morning. He said, this is John MacArthur. Even Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest preachers in the history of the church, maybe the greatest theologian in American history, certainly the main instrument of God in the great awakening in America, our greatest revival historically. Jonathan Edwards, pastor of the same congregation for 23 years, and through t those 23 years, while they were hearing the truth of God from the greatest theological mind in the world at that time, they were unappreciative. And in the 23rd year, they ran him out of the church and did everything they could do to destroy his reputation so that no other church would call him as a pastor. And he ended up his life ministry with a little bit more than a do dozen Indians. Speaking to them about the very basic things of the Christian faith. After all that time, all that profound and blessed preaching, they threw him out of the church. I read that story some years ago, and it was such a tragic story that it never has left my conscious mind. And I always think, too, of Spurgeon, the greatest Baptist preacher of his day, the greatest preacher of his day, period. His sermons would be preached, and then they would edit them, and, they would, uh, and then they would ship them. They said they left England, and they would go all around the world. There was no one like him, and yet he was thrown out of the Baptist Union, and the vote was made to do that. And it was seconded by his associate pastor, who was his brother. Talk about wounded in the house of your friends. He never really recovered physically from that, died a premature death. And I think it was contributed to, and in some measure by the severe disappointment, it doesn't seem to matter how gifted, doesn't seem to matter how faithful, how diligent, how hardworking a pastor and a shepherd may be. It's amazing how people can treat him with cruelty. Two of the greatest preachers that there were. And you think it can't happen here? We've got to be on guard. So we see that Paul asked to have recognition for its leaders, to, res to have respect for its leaders that flow out of the understanding of the role of its leaders. And the result that follows 
from this request is that we will have peace when we cooperate together. And I want to conclude with reading Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. The Bible talks about um, Christ's gift that he gives to each member of the body a gift. But he also gives the church as a whole gifts. You know, when they would go to war back in the Old Testament, the king would go to war and when he would take the spoils, he would come back and he would present those spoils as a gift to the people. And I believe that's what it's talking about here. Notice Ephesians 4, 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave. Notice he continues to give. He's given gifts. And he gave the apostles, he, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and, te- uh, the shepherds and teachers. So that, the, that God gives, Christ gives the shepherd teachers as a gift to the church. With what purpose? To what end? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. For the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all, we're not separate. We've got different functions, but we are together. We all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We must, as leadership and laity, work together, cooperate together. And then the body will build itself up in love. God will build his church, but he uses means. He uses the leadership that he raises up, that he calls. And and when we equip the saints for the work of the ministry, and then each person using the gifts that Christ gave you, when you do that, the church will build itself up in love, and Christ will build his church. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you will build your church. You have established the means to build your church. You have given us leadership. We thank you, Lord, for raising Josh up. We thank you. We ask you to, uh, in the future, to continue to raise up leaders. We pray for the, uh, the rest of our church, God, that you would help us all to cooperate together. That everyone here would use their gifts in cooperation with the body. And that we would uh, build this church up in love, as, he, as Ephesians 4 tells us here. That you would be honored and glorified by this place. That you would receive glory and honor from Maynardville Fellowship. These things we ask in Christ's name. Amen.